Well, tonight we start part four of this mini-series, We Exhort You. That's been the title of our series. We're on to the fourth lesson, and Lord willing, tonight we'll make a little bit more headway on this. Now, the vast majority of you, you've caught all or parts of this series, and so a lot of this starts to sound very repetitive, but when we talk about we exhort you, of course, Paul is talking about him and his mission companions exhorting these believers in Thessalonica. And exhorting them, of course, means to urge or implore, to encourage, to entreat, or to request earnestly. And that's the one that I've sort of been narrowing in on, to request earnestly. This idea of begging, even how the word is translated, we beg you, not in a sense that we're doing it for our own self-glory or anything like that, but it's so important that I'm desperate that you would take this advice is the idea. So when we talk about requesting earnestly, it's like, it's this sense of I have such a deep concern for you that I'm really hopeful that you would take this instruction to heart. And Paul is quick to say throughout his writings that it's, it's God ultimately that is directing us to live a manner of living that is consistent with these truths as he seeks to bring about these changes through the power of his spirit working in us if we would keep our eyes on him and let him do his work in us or, or complete his work in us. And so there's a series then of these exhortations and we said there's 15 of them that span between verses 14 and 25. They're being again communicated from this place of love. He chose to end this letter with this series of earnest requests or looking for these desperate pleas, if you will, looking for a favorable response to these instructions with the mindset that this would benefit these believers that he loves desperately. So thus far, we've looked at, I think, approximately 10 of them, and we're going to keep going tonight. Let's read through this section. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to read this section that we've been kind of focused on, starting in verse 14. Verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. And then our last exhortation, brethren, pray for us. So as we work our way toward that last exhortation, we see that there's a number of others that are given in a sort of a 
quick list kind of a way. There's not a lot of explanation given about the exhortations. So rapid fire, that's what I was looking for. So in a rapid fire way, we have all of these different exhortations, all of them communicated in the imperative voice, all of them communicated with this idea that for you to experience the spiritual state of being or, or the spiritual success that God wants for you, you will heed his instructions for you as it relates to these things. And the flip side of that, of course, is that if you refuse to do that, you're not going to have the outcome that God desires for you, meaning you're not going to experience in time the joy and the spiritual health that he wants to have for you. You're not going to be redeeming the time. You're not going to be making use of it in a way that would have eternal value and in a way that would lift him up. So it can't be a little of, a little of both. The idea is that at any point in time, you're presently appropriating by faith these instructions in the sense of allowing God to work through you so that these things are true in your life or you're presently rejecting God's truth and saying, I know better or I don't agree with God or I've chosen to exchange God's truth for someone else's lies, whether they're my own self-deceit or they're the lies of the world around me. So take, for example, if you have God instructing through a spirit-led, spirit-directed, speaking through Paul, instructing you to say this, rejoice always. And you say, I'm not going to celebrate the Lord in this moment in my life because the difficulties that I'm going through are too great. The reality is in that moment, you're not going to be able to achieve God's intended outcome for you, which is that you would be enjoying him, enjoying intimacy of fellowship, be enjoying the spiritual success that he has for you where your life would be described as a life that is overflowing, experiencing life to the fullest, the abundant life that he has planned with you, for you, which can only be enjoyed when we're willing to trust God and follow his direction for our lives. Again, we've brought it up many times. This isn't a call to produce these things through your own human effort. This is a call, though, to be mindful of God's desire and direction for your life and see that this is what God wants to be true of my life, and the only way it'll be true in my life is if I'm trusting him, keeping my focus on him, and allowing him to do his good work inside me or in and through me. So as we've looked at these, we've seen, again, a bunch of them. Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil. Pursue what is good. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks and do not quench the spirit. So I didn't count those, but I think that's roughly 10. That is 10. Five sets of two. Eric, is that 10? So we got 10 so far. Now we're to do not despise prophecies and in all likelihood this is what we'll get through tonight lord willing so do not despise prophecies this one in addition to it being a sort of a tough day for me to finish my study this is a duff, this is a difficult one this one is not a direct application to our lives so much and I'll, we'll get into some of the the details of it and even some of some of our position, or at least I can speak to my position on it. Uh, but over time, we have taken a position that some of the gifts that God has given to spirit-filled believers 
were necessary for the establishment of the local church or the early church, I should say, is a better way of saying it. And that not all of those things continue to be relevant or applicable today. Now, there's, we'll see there are different opinions about that, but that's why we're going to dive into this. It'll be a little bit uh, different than some of our studies have been in this passage so far. But when we talk about what, is, what does Paul mean when he says, do not despise prophecies? Well, despise, what do we what do we mean? Well, despise, he means it conveys this idea of scoffing at, treating with contempt, or disregarding something. And I think while certainly you are scoffing at something when you don't find it to be important enough in your life that you would trust God enough to, to utilize or to make that true in your life, that is scoffing at God in a sense when he says, do not have this lack of concern or lack of interest in my revelation. What, what I want to communicate to man in a prophetic way. That if you do that, it's going to be detrimental to your spiritual well-being. And so I think disregarding it, though, is probably the part of that definition that jumps out the most to me. Do not despise, do not disregard prophecies. And I think of so many things that we are taught by those who know better than us, whether it's a more experienced co-worker, whether it's a parent, whether it's a coach, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, whether it's a youth leader, whether it's uh, maybe somebody who's a little bit more mature in their faith. Sometimes it's through God's word directly. Sometimes it's through a book about God's word. There's a lot of different ways we can be instructed into biblical truths or things that others know more than we do. But the tendency is to be proud. The tendency by nature for every human being is not to be humble, it's to be proud. It's to have a higher view of oneself than what should be or what ought to be the case. And so the natural downside of being proud is that you think you know more than you do. And when you think you know more than you do, you tend to ignore the advice or the instruction of those who are better or more experienced or better equipped than you are. And so that can take many different forms. Uh, Sean and I actually were just talking about an example of that. Even when it comes to evangelism, there's not necessarily per se this is the only way to evangelize. There's many, many different ways to evangelize. But it is true that there are more effective ways to evangelize which package the information in a way that's really concise. It's really logical. It appeals to very specific truths from God's word. It's, it's accurate. It's more clear. It's a little it's not uh, garbled or hard to understand. It's simple. It's simplified. It's made easy. And then there's those that don't get it quite right, where the best of intentions fall short in the sense that they don't have as much maturity. They don't understand God's truth as much. They can't render something that is touched on in many different ways. They can't render it down to its essence, so the gospel in a nutshell type of a thing. And so the one who is communicating the gospel ineffectively, can we still celebrate that? As long as it's accurate, as long as, it, if it's ineffective but it's accurate, yeah, we can. The motive behind it or even, even if there is pride behind it, Paul says, I rejoice and I can celebrate that the gospel is preached even though sometimes the motives in preaching the gospel is to attract followers to oneself or to cause him harm. He says, I still celebrate because in any event the gospel is is preached or declared. But I'll tell you what, if you are unwilling to be humble about things, you'll never get better at something. 
Because there are others who have done it a lot more than you have, have shared the gospel a lot more than you, are gifted more in that sense of evangelistic. They have a heart for it. They have a passion for it. They have a giftedness for it. And they're very effective at it because of experience in all those things I just mentioned. Now, if you're somebody who has never had that experience, in all likelihood, you're going to stumble around. And we found that we found that to be true as we talked to even our young people about sharing the gospel and effective evangelism. We found that despite the fact they can rattle off a bunch of verses, when you actually ask them to sit down and to walk through the gospel message, they have difficulty, especially if you ask any sort of common objectives or you raise any common objectives to the gospel message. The more, the more you do that, the more you see that they're not really as equipped as they think they are. And in most instances, instances, the more they see that. But the point of it all is that there's this sense of pride getting in the way of taking in information that God has for you that would benefit you. So that's the concept we have of disregarding something that is very important and very necessary in your Christian life. And so we'll get to some of the, you know, beyond prophecy itself or in that exact context, some of the more general applications to to our lives. But now we talk about this word prophecies. So despise, to treat with contempt or disregard something. But the Greek word translated prophecies, it means a speaking forth. A speaking forth. And the word refers to speaking on behalf of God as inspired and directed by God. This can involve repeating truths previously given or revealing truths previously hidden. Let me say that again. It can involve repeating truths as a spokesperson for God, that God has instructed this message to be conveyed, and it's not new information. It's repeating truths previously given. And there's many examples. If you were to go through some of the prophets in the Old Testament, prophets in the New Testament, you can tell that there's many of them that are repeating a warning that or a warning or information that had already been previously revealed. So it's not new revelation from God in that sense. It's being tasked with the idea of repeating some revelation God had previously made in the capacity of a spokesperson or speaking forth something from God directed to man. And then you have the other aspect of that, which is revealing truths that were previously hidden. So new revelation that came in a prophetic form through a prophet of God or a spokesperson from God. Sometimes that was doctrinal. Sometimes that was prophetic utterances in terms of future events that were being foretold ahead of time. So sometimes it was, again, repeating things that God had already previously said. Sometimes it was revealing new revelation from God. Sometimes it was foretelling events that would happen in the future. And there's probably more to it than that. The reality is there's no way to cover the full scope of this. There was no way for me to study the full scope of it in the time I had or to, to do it all in one message. But that's the general idea we're talking about with prophecy. Now, prophecy can involve declaring the divine will, interpreting the purposes of God, or, to, or making known the truth of God in a manner always intended to influence people. That's one of the things that I think is a key takeaway as we talk about not despising or, or treating with contempt or disregarding God's spoken word or God's truth that is being revealed to mankind through a human messenger. And so as you think about 
that idea that God never speaks or he never communicates his truth with the idea that you would ignore it. So we can already start making some applications to the divine, the prophetic giving of revelation from God to man that ended up being combined to form the completed word of God or the canon of scripture. And so everything that is here is breathed by God through man. In a sense, it has a prophetic aspect to it. We'll get it We'll get that in a sense. Some of it was spoken directly through prophets, though. Some of it was spoken through other men. And you could say, were they technically a prophet in the use of the word biblically? Uh, Sometimes not. But they were serving a prophetic function in the sense that God was revealing some truth through them. He was speaking forth. And in the instance of the inspiration of the Spirit of God as it comes to the creation of the Word of God, there's it's overlapped almost to the point of being the same thing. But the idea is God wants to influence people when he speaks. He doesn't expect his word or his revelation to be ignored. Now think of that from the perspective of a loving parent. I can't state enough how important it is to view God's care, compassion, and concern for you through the lens of a parent and their love for a child. That's how God sees you. That's how God views you. And so God's unfathomable love for us is the context for these instructions. Now, when a parent who loves their child gives instruction, now we're talking about who loves their child, who's acting in the best interest of their child, that parent, when they give instruction, it's always intended to benefit the child and the parent intends for the child to not treat that with contempt. It's intended to influence the thinking of the child. So oftentimes a frustrated parent, it might maybe just me as a frustrated parent, will be, I'm wasting my breath. How many of you have thought that or said that while talking to your children? (laughs) We got one brave soul to raise a hand. Thank you, Chaz. Way to not make me feel like the loner on this. This is just wasting my breath. Well, why? Because you see the heart. Sometimes it's in the posture. I wish you could see that on the tape because I did my best. It was a pouty lip and crossed arms. Sometimes it's in the posture. Other times it's in what the child says in response to what you're telling them. And it's real clear. They're not being influenced. Their thinking isn't being influenced by the instruction that's being provided. But that's the context that we have to keep in mind anytime we're looking at God's revelation to mankind. Is he's, he's intending to influence our thinking. And I hope you see the value of that. If that's the only takeaway you have tonight, that Paul is wanting to remind these believers that we're exhorting you, we're begging you not to despise the things that God is telling you. Don't ignore them. Let them influence your thinking. And as they influence your thinking, they'll influence your life. All right, let's pray. No, (laughs) I'm teasing you. That That is the hook of this, though. So we're going to go deeper, but that is the hook. God wants to influence our thinking through his word. He does not want us to despise what he has to say. And that was going on. That was taking place here in Thessalonica, or at least there was enough of a risk of it. There's different views on how much of that was going on, but at least there was enough risk of it that Paul wanted to warn about it here in these exhortations at the end of the, of the letter. All right, so as we move on, we see that in the Old Testament, 
Prophecy often involved reproving and admonishing the wicked, comforting the afflicted, or revealing things hidden, especially by foretelling future events. But remember, there's those more than one aspect to it there. There's revealing things that are hidden, but there's also this repeating, reproving, admonishing, comforting, serving this role as a spokesperson for God as he says, go tell them this. Go speak this. And so in the Old Testament, you have a similar thing there as what you have in the New Testament, although the gift of prophecy in the New Testament seems to be just a little bit, has a little bit different nuances, which we'll, we'll get to. But the gift of prophecy was one of many spiritual gifts, gifts that was utilized by the Lord. Now we have lists of spiritual gifts that impacted the early church, and that's the context of this writing. So you can, you can think of prophecy as a gift from the Lord in the Old Testament as a, a, a gift, but usually as in our context, for our purposes, when we're thinking about spiritual giftedness, we're talking about the church age. We're talking about gifts that are applicable to the local church or those that are in the local church. So I want to turn to a few passages. There's at least three main ones that kind of delve into the variation that we can find in spiritual gifts, and we'll see that prophecy is one of those gifts. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're looking for verse 6. Romans 12, 6. So if you went back a little bit further, we'd see that the benefit or the intention behind spiritual gifts was the benefit of the body. It was the benefit of others. So we're part of one body in Christ. Verse 5, it says, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we have this uniqueness where we're all part of one body, but we don't have the same function. You see that in verse 4. So for as we having many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, he then is going to go into this discussion about some of the differences between the giftedness of different members of this local church. So you pick up in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. So if we have a gift, what benefit does it do if we won't allow the Lord to work in and through us to use that giftedness in a way that would bring him glory and benefit each other? So you think about squandering gifts that the Lord has given you. That's not about feeling shame or guilt. Remember, Christianity isn't driven by guilt and shame and fear. But it is driven by this desire to want to respond to the Lord and his direction in our lives, knowing that he's for us all of the time, not some of the time. He's a good God. He's on our side. He's for us. He wants what's best for us. And anything he blessed us with was for our benefit, for his glory, and for the benefit of others he's put in our lives. So is it good to be reminded of that? Yes. Because naturally we forget. We get to be focused on ourselves instead of using those gifts in a way that would benefit others. So that's the kind of the focus of this section here. So he says, if prophecy is your gift, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality, if that's your gift. 
He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So this is just one discussion of some of the giftedness and how God intends us to use those in ways that would benefit others. But there you have it there. That prophecy is listed out as a gift that members within the body were given for the establishment and benefit of the whole body. Now turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll see another key passage on spiritual giftedness, especially the diversity within spiritual giftedness. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 4. He starts out with a a clear statement here. There are diversities of gifts, but where do they all come from? They come from the same spirit. So in that sense, we're all one body. We all have one power source. And the objective is that all of this would work together in a way that is symbiotic, where it would benefit everybody. So then we continue. There are differences of ministries, but there's the same Lord. There's different gifts, there's different ministries, but we're all one. We all have one objective. Verse 6, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. To God be the glory, great things he has done. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Just so you're reminded again in this passage, there's this benefit to each other that is intended in any giftedness. It's not about one person standing out from the other or one person being glorified more than another per se, although he does speak that some gifts are especially important to the foundational development of the early church. But he's not, though the gift might be more important, he's not saying the person is more important. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. Now, I want you to just note that those two things go hand in hand. I wasn't planning on getting into that much, but you see that there's a balance there. There's one person that has the gift of prophecy here, and then another, the prophet of discernment of spirits. So there's a safety net there where God has equipped some to be discerning of who is legitimately being led by the Lord and who's not. So the one is just not in, the, in a vacuum by itself. It's offset by this other gift of discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues and to another, the interpretation of tongue, tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So there's all these different types of functions and ministries for the benefit of all. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 28 and 29. And God has appointed these in the church. Now, again, what part of the church, what time frame of the church are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the foundation of the church, and we'll get to that in a second. But there were things necessary for the foundation of the church. And God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Then he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, 
are all workers of miracles. So he sticks with this theme that everybody has a different function and a different giftedness, but they're all intended to benefit the well-being of the church. He appointed these in the church, verse 28. And so that's sort of an overview of the sense that there is these variety of spiritual gifts that are utilized by the Lord, and prophecy is just one of them. So those are three passages that talk about the variety of gifts and the intention behind those gifts. Now, in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy was primarily used by God to establish the foundations of the church. And so when you're, you say, well, where do you get that from? Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll see the foundational role of prophecy in the early church. Again, prior to the canon of Scripture being revealed, being concluded, and God's revelation being closed. Ephesians chapter 2, let's pick up in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, we're talking about the church here. Verse 20, having been built, built on what? Built on the foundation. What was that foundation? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This idea of this mystery of the church that was hidden in times past has been revealed now is being established through a variety of different giftedness and a variety of different people but all working together to bring God glory and to lift him up. Now, this gift of prophecy is one just like this gift of being an apostle that, or the role, I wouldn't call it a gift, I guess, but the role of being an apostle. That there's some that were serving in certain roles and they were necessary we have there there being the church itself is being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets so these foundational prophecies related primarily to the form function and doctrine of the church so the prophecy that was going on as i understand it is primarily then going to be related if it's setting the foundation for the early church a foundation that was needed because it wasn't revealed previously in Scripture, the existence of the church itself wasn't revealed in Scripture, then what do we need to know? We need to know quite a bit of information about form of the church, function of the church, doctrines of the church. Some of them had already been revealed through Jesus, Christ himself. That's the cornerstone of all this. We saw that in verse 20. But there was additional revelation being made. That revelation was being given through a variety of means, but it seems that one of them was through prophecy. Now, was that one and the same as the apostolic role in the church? No, it seems to be two separate things. Does that mean that there was nobody who was functioning with both, in both roles? And I think the answer is, depends on how you view the revelation of Scripture through the Apostle Paul, even as an example. There's most of the New Testament the letters that we have, the epistles that we have, then the gospels that we have, most of them came to us through apostles. So if you're thinking about prophecy that became the written word of God or the completed canon of scripture, then you would say that prophecy or that inspired writing of God or instruction of God or teaching of God to man, that did come primarily through 
the apostles, but not exclusively. And so then, what w- if that's the function of the apostolic role is to have that authoritative, uh, foundational, set things up, set things in order, have established credibility, be established as a reliable source of God's truth, be an established source of repeating what they learned from Jesus directly. We saw that in First John, how he talks about we're teaching you or we're repeating to you that which we have heard and seen among many witnesses. He's saying we're repeating that teaching from Christ directly, but then you look at the additional revelation made through those apostles taking place over a course of that first hundred years or less of the early church. And then we have a closed canon of scripture. And so in that sense, you would say then what was the primary role of prophecy if the revelation that became the scripture was primarily coming through apostles. He would say it seems to be God speaking or reminding people of different things relating to the function of the church, the form of the church, and potentially reminders about the doctrine of the church. Now is that, what I've just said, is that inspired by God? No, it's not. That's, that's my take after looking at this. Perhaps there's a different view of that, and I know there are different views about some of this. So that's how I would view that. There was this foundational role where God would speak through human beings, having provided them that gift. They would be speaking forth on behalf of God, having, God having given them that gift for the foundation of the early church. So then you go on and you say, well, most of the New Testament scriptures then, if it was written through apostles, in a sense that you could say is prophetic too speaking on behalf of God. But again, I've said I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. I think prophecy, again, is focused more on form and function and doctrine, less so the revelation of what comes to be the word of God or the the holy scriptures. Now, it's interesting because some people have argued that the New Testament should be disregarded, that it doesn't have the same authority as the Old Testament, that all of scripture is not given by inspiration from God. And it's not equally authentic or authoritative. And I want you to turn because I, I saw this as I was studying and it's something I'd seen previously but was reminded of. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. I just want you to see that when it comes to prophecy or something akin to prophecy, which is God speaking through human authors through the power of his spirit for the purpose of revealing his truth into a canon of scripture that we would have at our fingertips, that when that was happening, in real time, it was being viewed as authoritative and just as authoritative as the Old Testament, at least by those that were present there. So Peter speaks to this in chapter 3 of Second Peter. So me reading chapter 3 of First Peter probably won't help us. So Second Peter chapter 3, we want to look at verse 15 and then verse 16. Verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our brother, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles... So how many of them? All of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, there's a little bit of a laugh. I've heard other Bible teachers mention that Peter's pretty tough to understand at times too, and he's saying Paul's hard to understand. 
But some of them are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Catch this now. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here's Peter very definitively stating that he's lumping together the epistles that were written by Paul with the rest of the scriptures. That statement includes them as being authentic scriptures that are inspired by God. And you could say, well, I disagree with his view, but that's one of the best passages I think you'll come across that's going to speak to the idea that even the early church apostles looked at Paul's writing, because some have really gone after Paul's writings in particular. They looked at them as authoritative. And you see it there as they're put in the same mention or the same grouping as the rest of the scriptures a reference to Old Testament writings. So that was just a little bit of an aside. We move on here. The gift of New Testament prophecy, it was intended primarily to teach and encourage believers. So when you're looking for passages about what was the intended principle, intended purpose of this gift in the early church, if this was a foundational thing, was it, was it to add to the revelation of scriptures? doesn't seem to be as we look at the passages that talk about its intended purpose. Let's turn there. Our first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So turn back there, if you will. The primary purpose being to teach and encourage. And again, it could be teaching new things, but I actually think it's teaching or reminding them of things that were already known. Again, because of the way you look at what comes to make up the New Testament canon of scriptures and how it is synonymous in many ways with apostolic authority and God having spoken or utilized them in particular to speak through his word. Now, you, you have exceptions to that. I realize that. But by and large, that is the case. So 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, But he who prophesies, what is the purpose supposed to be? Speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So it's edification, exhortation, and comfort that is intended to be the use of prophecy. Now, before we have established understanding of, again, the function and form of the local church, before we have a full understanding of all of the teaching of Christ and even the revelation of some of additional truths through the epistles, there's a need for people to serve in that role. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, if you look at verses 29 through 31 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, it says this, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So we have this idea of learning, exhortation being being pled with to follow some instruction, edification to build up, comfort, this idea of being comforted by God's truth as God uses human beings to speak, to have that that sense of being a mouth a mouthpiece for or speaking forth through them to human beings. And so those are the best two passages I could find that speak to sort of the intended primary function of this gift of prophecy. Now the question, and this is the most controversial, is this still a gift in use today? Well, there's a disagreement about it. There's disagreement within 
circles of those who are grace-oriented, dispensational in their views about things. It's not something that is out of the realm of disagreement because there aren't that many just absolutely precise and clear-cut passages on it. And so I think there, I don't think there's a need for necessarily saying uh, this is absolutely the case. And so when we even talk about cessation in our doctrinal statement, we don't specifically talk about prophecy. We talk about speaking in tongues and the gift of healing. We don't specifically talk about prophecy. But I want to tell you that I don't believe the gift is still in use today. That's my current position on it. And I, I would think that is effectively the position I was raised with and that most of you are probably most familiar with. But just reminding you that everyone we would generally align with doctrinally, they don't necessarily share that opinion. But the opinion they do share, and I think this is why it's not as important as you might be saying, what do you mean it's not not that important? Well, it's because everyone that we do agree with, they would agree about this fact. They would all agree that the new revelation aspect of prophecy has ceased with the completion of the Bible. And that's the one that's most likely to be abused if you think about the potential function of prophecy or prophetic gifts. This idea that people have a special dispensation on truth, that God is speaking something new or revealing something new through them. And that that has caused all kinds of problems in seeking to undermine the word of God and the certainty of the word of God, the completeness of the word of God. And so none of the ones that I could find that we would agree with doctrinally otherwise that take the view that there's some aspects of this giftedness that remain today, none of them take the view that there's extra biblical or additional biblical revelation being made by God. They're focused more on the teaching aspects of prophecy, and we'll get to that in a second. So the only disagreement really is definitional in nature. So that's why it's not as big of a deal as you maybe initially thought. With those saying it continues, they argue for a very broad definition of what prophecy entails. So everybody, again, in our camps of dispensational, grace-oriented, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, I couldn't find anybody who thinks that the canon of Scripture continues to be added to by extra-biblical revelation made in the form of the giftedness of prophecy today. But there are those that would say that the term for prophecy or the description of what it means to have a gift of prophecy, it entails more than new revelation. And that there's many examples of people who are said to have been a prophet or have the gift of prophecy that aren't saying anything new. They're teaching or preaching about something that was already known. And to that extent, that's how they're saying that that gift or that aspect of the gift continues in the form of preaching and teaching. Now, I'll tell you why I disagree even with that view. I can live with that view in some ways, but I disagree with it just because when we're looking at 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, when we were looking at that sort of the definition of some of the gifts, the spiritual gifts, you see this order. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, and what's the third one? Third teachers. So there's, they're not one and the same thing. This idea that preaching or teaching has to fall within the gifted the giftedness of prophecy or having a prophetic gift isn't necessarily so because they're listed as three separate things. And so if, that, if your argument is that's the only aspect of that spiritual gift that remains today, 
you would say that doesn't seem that consistent with that listing of, of them being separate in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight. The other best argument for saying I don't think it continues at all is, is found from talking about that Ephesians chapter 2 passage. So, for something to be foundational, it necessarily involves being part of the beginning phase of construction, not something that's permanent. So if you say that something was foundational, the takeaway or the natural transition of that thought would be to say, then if it's listed as being foundational, it means that it was there for a time for the establishment of a foundation and then it was no longer. And so I think same with apostleship. There was a need for apostles in the early church. Why? Because the canon of scripture wasn't completed. How could you authenticate or know who to listen to if everybody said they were being led and directed by God and there was no way to verify that? So we have signed gifts uh, that were utilized to prove the authenticity of apostleship, to prove the authenticity that God was really speaking through certain individuals. We needed to learn about doctrine. We needed to learn about form. We needed to learn about function. There was a need for those gifts. And... Is that same need necessary once the church has been established, the canon of scriptures has been completed, and it's readily available to every believer? And so there's different takes about what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is talking about when that which is perfect is complete. What does that mean? Uh, We don't have time for the scope of our evening tonight to go into every passage about this. I'm just sharing this is my personal takeaway on it. Now, there's other arguments, like I say, beyond these on both sides of this. And as far as I'm concerned, if, if you believe that God is still revealing new and novel truth through human prophets, I would strongly disagree with that. Uh, if you're going to expand the definition of a prophetic gift to include more a ministry of preaching or teaching, what has already been revealed, explaining uh, truth, I guess, you know, that's not something that I'm going to get into a fist fight with you about. Now, how do you despise prophecies? Some of you are like, holy cow. That, it took us that long to get to the meat of this. The exhortation is do not despise prophecies. How would you even do that? Well, there's two ways to do that. You can despise prophecies by directing your contempt or your disregard at either the message or the messenger. So you have a prophetic message and you have a a person who's communicating that message, the prophet. So you can have disregard or contempt for the one communicating the message as speaking out, a speaking out of God or speaking forth of God or you can go after the message itself. That would be to show disregard or contempt for the prophecy. So Paul's saying don't do that. And you think about that, why would, why would he need to do that? Why would Paul need to say, don't have contempt for either the messenger or the message when it comes to prophecy or this speaking out or speaking forth of God to you for your benefit, especially here as we're talking about establishing something that was hidden before and never even known before. That's not going to benefit you to do that, child. Don't do that. This giftedness is for your benefit. We just looked at how all three kind of proof texts about spiritual gifts make it abundantly clear that the underlying purpose of the spiritual gifts was the benefit of the body, the benefit of the whole. 
So when you have disdain or despise or disregard the things that God is speaking forth through these human instruments, that's akin to having a disdain or disregard for me. And you're never going to be benefited by ignoring me. If this person is speaking forth on behalf of me, then it's ultimately to your own loss or to your own shame that you would disregard that message. And so Paul says don't do that. Well, why? Because that's what comes naturally. Contempt is the natural response to something or someone you see no value in or have no respect for. So if you don't have any respect for God himself, if you don't trust him and take him at his word, if you don't see his truth as important, if you're not interested in his revelation to you or his instruction for your life, then you're naturally not going to have any interest or regard for the message that he communicates to you or the person that he chooses to use as the messenger for that message. So that comes naturally. It's a byproduct of pride. To not care what God has to say about your life is just evidence of an underlying pride where you say, I don't need this. I know better than God does. I can do this on my own. Or don't tell me what to do. Another temptation, so the natural temptation, is to naturally have no respect for or little respect for others' views besides your own. The the other temptation or natural temptation is to value the message or determine the value of a message based on your externally focused assessment of the messenger. Isn't that true? That as God seeks to impact you, you're more responsive to people that you naturally relate to more or people that you value more highly? With our natural external focus, the person who is more friendly or more eloquent or has a better bedside manner, the person that's easier to like, the person who has common interests, will listen to what they have to say. Very often as God is seeking to exhort you, impact you, encourage you, through fellowship with other believers, we're very picky about who would we take anything from? Who would we even listen to? And God's saying the whole body comes together, fit together tightly or should be fit together tightly for the mutual benefit of one another. The same, so that's true about God's message, the word of God itself, but it's also true about being somebody who looks at the externals, focuses on the method instead of the message. You see, no human-derived message is more useful than God's message. So very often we see very, very cleverly packaged ideas, movements, the, the latest thing in Christianity. And it's whitewashed and sanctified as if this is something that God's behind when it has nothing to do with biblical truth. But it works its way through the Christian community because, again, it's given the appearance of being something that is sanctified. It's something that's holy. But at the core, it has nothing to do with God's specific revelation. It's not tied to a specific principle from the Word of God. It's not tied to specific truth from the Word of God. But if it's packaged nicely, we'll respond more to that than we'll respond to God's Word itself. So that human-derived message, it doesn't matter how pretty it is. If it doesn't come from God, then it's not useful. And Paul knew that. Paul knew the value of both the gift and the ministry it provided the, fledg- the fledgling local church. So when we talk about this foundational value of this, he knew that the gift and the message were both equally important. And so there was some type of imbalance that he's speaking to here that he was seeking to avoid as he gives this imperative, do not despise prophecies. 
Now, is there any application to our day? And I've been making application in terms of talking about if a prophecy is ultimately a speaking forth of God, certainly his word is akin to that in the sense that he spoke through human authors. Every word was inspired by him. There's not one jot or tittle that was ever lost or would ever be lost. God is very concerned that he says his word will never pass away. It'll never be lost. And so as we think about his ultimate revelation to man, it was more than just the form and the function and the doctrine of the local church. It was his word. And so there's a clear correlation there to us today. Do not despise prophecy. But I mentioned it jokingly earlier where we could have sort of ended the message there in the sense that don't have no regard for God's truth. When God speaks, Let's take that to heart. And the temptation is to put the ideas of men on equal footing with the word of God. And that's still something we deal with today. The tendency is to value the packaging and the presentation more than the accuracy and the content of the message. But the critical decision is always twofold. It's really two questions. Will you believe God and accept his truth or his word? Or will you believe yourself or someone and something else? someone or something else. Those are the choices. And every day, there's the opportunity to despise the speaking forth of God in your life. And every day, there's the opportunity to take God at his word, to know that he has your best interests at heart, that he wants you to thrive in your spiritual walk with him, that he wants to draw you nearer to him, that he wants to have an intimacy with you that can only be experienced through trusting him. So that's the question. You're never going to benefit from having contempt or for or disregarding God's instruction and direction for your life. But you'll have untold blessing by being convinced to put your confidence and trust and your focus on instead of disregarding with my whole heart I have sought after you. That mentality instead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Thank you again for the local church and all those that could come out tonight. Just even... If it's your will, I pray that I would feel better and, and uh, be ready to go for Sunday. Thank you again that you love us so much and that you've demonstrated that again through the sacrifice of your son. Pray that we would have hearts that want to serve others as you serve us and that we would want to live for you as you were willing to give your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.